0: This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The injustice of the carceral state remains high with violent police arrests, unfair criminal courts, and a dehumanizing prison system. Abolitionists are playing the long game, however, and in spite of lowered media coverage, The demands made during the 2020 racial justice uprisings remain alive. Today, we turn to Noelle Hanrahan. She is the founder and director of Prison Radio. She is a lawyer, a licensed private investigator, investigative journalist, researcher, and radio producer. And she's been ensuring a platform for incarcerated individuals to speak out for decades now. She's produced Mumia Abu-Jamal's radio commentaries so uh, wonderful to have you on the program, Noel. Thanks for joining us.
1: Really happy to be here.
0: So you've had a sort of front row seat for decades to the injustice of the criminal justice system and particularly the courts. And I'm wondering if you can sort of lay out for me how badly broken our legal system is from the pers- perspective of minimizing harm to individuals and communities. It's supposed to be the place that justice gets you know, decided and meted out. But is it really?
1: I think what we're all really trying to come to grapples, grapple with and we're really trying to come to terms with is the system is designed to function exactly as it was planned. It is not broken. It is uh, doing a service for the ruling class, the capitalist class, Um, those who want to manage people who are demanding food, work and bread and humanity. So I think it's working exactly as it was intended. It's not broken. I think that we have suffered in particular in our number of decades that we've all been alive and our children are currently suffering from an escalation of the tactic of incarceration of the response to people's demands um, for liberation was to criminalize and to incarcerate. One of the, you know, I learned a lot from reading a number of different people, but including Mike Davis about how, and Ruthie Gilmore, about how class interests are being served by managing Um, people who deserve work and deserve health care and deserve um, humanity. And so I think that is the response. It's working exactly as it's planned.
0: So it's a a very terrifying place, I imagine, for individuals. Um, Of course, we don't hear as much about the experience of individuals in the court system. We do hear about, of course, the violence of policing. And it's you know the the word abolition is kind of a generalized term and it originated with the um, discussion around abolishing slavery. Some uh, there have been prison abolitionists for many many years. There have been folks who have been talking about abolishing police for you know lesser number of years. And occasionally we hear people talk about overhauling or ending even the entire criminal justice system as we know it. So there's a bit of a spectrum. Where do you fall on the spectrum of abolition?
1: It's been an evolution, but I am firmly a 1,000% an abolitionist to defund the police, and to completely transform the criminal justice system, including the courts, any entry level. It's like I think every morning when I get up in the morning, I think, what's the Django piece that can come out from the bottom of the puzzle? Because it's the whole system that's corrupt, that's um, trying to reproduce itself. It's like cancer. The criminal justice system is criminogenic. It creates crime. A uh, number of years ago, I went to get my master's in criminal justice because I wanted to understand the boiling pot of water that we were in. Um, it was in the last 40 decades, we've had an immensely larger growth of mass incarceration. And we are in the middle of it. And so I was studying with a lot of cops and a lot of guards who are calling in or zooming in from Bagram Air Force Base. Um, and they were thinking people, they probably also wanted the pay bump for getting a master's, but people thinking about this system, it creates crime in and of itself. If you, I wished and I would was trying to get this master's program to look at any other country, any other country. No one else on earth does this. They do not control their population through mass incarceration or, or, yeah. So it's, and we couldn't, we weren't studying anything outside of the US. They were tinkering with the machinery of death as um, Blackman, Supreme Court Justice said, Harry Blackman, tinkering with the machinery of death. And so you can't tinker with the system. It has to be completely overhauled. And it's a public health crisis. I mean, the only way that we are going to get people to have a decent, equitable future is to completely re-envision this entire rubric that is suffocating and killing our people. Um, And we all feel it. I mean, everyone feels it. Whether they can see it and identify it as the thing that's choking them and their children to death, that may be like the illumination, the light bulb, but it is the thing that is allowing us to not be able to fund schools, to not be able to fund healthcare that's driving down our um, standard of living in terms of not so much standard of living, but our life expectancy, it is driving down our life expectancy across all categories. And the violence that's perpetrated by frontline police officers, by people in the system, both on both sides of the wall, the prisoners and the guards, um, destabilizes our entire culture. And so when the system fuels that, they are privileging that violence and that violence is everywhere, as is the number of diseases that tuberculosis doesn't respect prison walls, hep C doesn't respect prison walls. I mean, there are epidemics that our communities are facing, violence, the violence inside and outside. guards are not immune from the violence. People in general are not immune from the violence that wrecks havoc on our communities. So all of that um, needs to be looked at as term, terms of how is it affecting how we live and breathe every day. I want, and how, I want, to, every
0: day. I want to pick up on what you uh, said earlier in your answer around how there aren't other countries that try to control their population through incarceration. I mean, uh, is that really true? I mean, I'm thinking about, I, I do you mean just democracies in the West? Uh, no, uh, don't most countries that. have prison systems?
1: We incarcerate the most people per capita of any country on earth. So that is just a fact. We also are doing it in a certain kind of way that's systemic in a way that there may not, there aren't, we have to study other, like other countries deal with crime and drugs and criminalization in far different ways than we do. Like you can name any country you know, there are the a couple of countries that are right below us on the incarceration spectrum that probably, I wouldn't go to those, but we need to look at other models of how people police and other, I it's, you know, may very well be true. I think it is that no other co- country privileges um, the access to guns that we privilege. Um, the way in which they saturate the community with armed police officers that's very unusual it is not generally a response to health issues or community issues or so i think yes this country creates crime through its criminal justice policies and then it creates the courts and the justice system to have an appearance of finality in approving those unjust arrests, the criminalization of entire populations. It's criminogenic. So it is criminalizing and penalizing people through fines in vast ways, as was demonstrated in Ferguson, when most of the population had outstanding fines and could be picked up at any time. The way in which the system is designed, it's designed to control people. um, Mike Davidson, and generally you know, it's
0: he, it's poor folks it's people of color it's people who are and and some would say that this sort of translates um in a direct line from what policing and the courts stemmed from historically as a way to control black people as a way to control um enslaved folks or as a way to control people after slavery uh, during Jim Crow segregation, would you agree that it's basically an extension? We've never really truly built the system from the ground up to, 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 uh, to deliver justice, and therefore since it was built on injustice, it remains that way?
1: I think it was designed to keep the inequities, to privilege only a few certain things, and to gloss over with uh, colorful language the essence of liberty, that it was not designed to liberate or empower all. It was designed to privilege few and predominantly white men. And I think it's true that those systems have been evolving. But if you look at it, the 13th Amendment, uh, privileged slavery in prisons, um, unduly, uh, you know, slavery is abolished except upon commission of a crime. So That is just one example, but all of it, the US constitution is littered with racial language that that privileges um, inequities. And it was those inequities that benefited a certain class that have been continually privileged. And it comes down into the very specific, Larry Krosner, our progressive revolutionary district attorney said in the Atlantic magazine, I know everyone knows, everyone knows. And and here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, everyone knows. The reason why we have over-incarceration and we have such corruption in our police department is because they are arresting poor and people of color in order to increase their pay bump for overtime when they visit the courthouse the next morning. Those warrants are fabricated and everyone knows it, and it was going on for decades, where they trained each other, a majority white police force. We have 6,500 active police officers, majority white in a majority black city, where they're, and they have very little education, and they were going to arrest people who were perceived as not having enough power to fight it. The brown and black bodies were being on assembly line through the Juanita Kid Justice Center, the Juanita Kid in Justice Center, and the courts were just approving it.
0: This and is it in was, Philadelphia
1: it, specifically. It is. It, it, to this day, it's in Philadelphia. So they come in the next day for police overtime. So they get a pay bump. So I said to Kanata Johnson's legal director, I said, what's up with this? And he goes, oh, everybody knows that's what's happening because they have to pay their Jersey mortgages. They have summer homes in Jersey or they have a home in Jersey or, oh, it's the last three years and they have to get that pension bump. And so they need to really stack up the hours. But that's why we can't fix anything. That's why we don't have any money. I mean, everyone knows that the system is completely corrupt here.
0: Speaking of Um, money, it is a a huge um, resource. Uh, sinkhole policing, prisons, the courts, and the idea of abolishing police for that very reason was accompanied by a call to defund the police, to start moving resources away from policing into the things that would make policing obsolete. Um, you know, such as providing people with all of the things that they need: shelter, food, healthcare, etc. So, what about um, from the court system, the criminal? Courts and the the justice system, um, but specifically the the court system. From an attorney's perspective, what are the legal resources that could benefit from uh, funding that we could, you know, transfer money from the courts and toward resources that would make the courts themselves obsolete?
1: Everything that is currently being funded has to be Reimagined and they have to justify what they're doing and we need social workers and not police officers, we need the community to have health care and jobs. We do not need incarceration and policing and the courts are just there to put a rubber stamp on it, they, you know, we would have a lot less of that if we could address the social inequities and also the, the, the problems that have been stoked by defunding our schools and defunding our healthcare and not having enough jobs for people. That's what we need. We need that behemoth of a police budget, the billion dollar police budget to be completely defunded. And it needs to be reallocated in a way that's gonna actually support people in their lives. And you know, there's other things that the criminal justice system does. They commodify everything they commodify everything. They commodify the mail, they commodify phones, they commodify people's bodies. And they do that by anybody who in Pennsylvania is convicted and sent to state prison. They lose their vote, but the rural counter county that they're incarcerated in gains their vote. And even after they're released, it keeps their vote. So it's transferring the votes, like they get more Congress people in rural counties because they have a three big prisons, that kind of commodification and stealing of people's agency has to stop. And yes, it may be our dream, but we get to dream. We get to dream about a future that doesn't kill our children. And we get to dream about a future that's equitable, where we don't have to watch and witness police brutality on a routine basis. And the democracy that I want to live in doesn't exist yet but it will be better if we fix these things, if not so much fix them, but reimagine them, become them. And we have to have the vision. Thank God for Ruthie Gilmore and Angela Davis and the law for Black Lives Matter. So as a lawyer, lawyers need to show up. And the only reason I became a lawyer was because we didn't have people showing up in court for the people I was representing a juvenile lifer doing a mitigation packet to get him home who was arrested when he was 16. And also for people who had hep C in prison, people were dying with hep C, which is a curable disease because they didn't have someone advocating for them. So that's why I went to law school. I also went to law school because at prison radio, we privilege people's voices inside. And it wasn't enough to just be a journalist to broadcast their voices. I also had to bring our correspondents home to do everything I could to get their release, not just work with them as a colleague. So,
0: the uh, earlier you were saying that uh, the court system is one that really does not, or we were discussing how it really does not um, validate and foster justice, what could a reimagined legal system look like? because it is important to live in, when we live in a democracy to have legal accountability. I'm thinking of you know corporate criminals or war criminals I'm thinking of uh, corruption in the at the highest levels. Um, it is important to have a court system in a functioning democracy. What could one? What could a functioning democracy's legal system? that actually fosters justice look like?
1: I think having radical and revolutionary DAs who prosecute police and who prosecute people for the crimes they commit against people, um, I think that's super important. I think we need to elect our own judges. I think we need to And that happens in
0: some some places, like in Los Angeles, uh, local judges are elected.
1: Mumia Abu-Jamal, many judges are elected in Pennsylvania. Mumia Abu-Jamal said that Things would have been different if we had started electing judges back in the day, because it doesn't take much, but we need to do it. And they need to be people who we vet and trust and who are not going to participate in the assembly line, that it has become the criminal justice system. Do I believe that the I think that the system is like a cancer and it is very capable of adapting and reform is always a. Nice and sort of sounding word, but it is not what we need. We need radical systemic change, and it has to happen because reform is only going to tinker with it. And also, they they won't do the reforms in a way that is going to challenge the system. So um, electing uh, electing
0: judges and and bringing on electing radical DAs those are those are
1: reforms um, toward a reimagining i think we need to vet those people and we need to make sure that they're really going to do the job that we want them to do i think that uh it's a difficult to reform this system i think that we need to find like what i think in the morning when i get up is we need to find that little mechanism that lever that's going to change everything i was reading a book this morning um and it was talking about how the Obama administration recognized that the Ferguson issue, the legal issue of in, of making almost all the residents have criminal records, they weren't going to fix it wholesale. We need wholesale amnesty. I don't need an innocence project or a district attorney letting 20 people out of prison. I need all of the arrests that were unjustly done. All of the arrest warrants, all of the people incarcerated who were done done through corrupt means, the whole class of people, I need all of them to get relief at once. No piecemeal, one person gets released, we feel better. Because that's just not how the system worked. The system worked to incarcerate whole classes of people. And so the rollback needs to be an equal response. There was a uh, truth, justice, and reconciliation um, announcements from our district attorney's office, Larry Krasner's office in Philadelphia. Those need to have teeth. They need to both acknowledge what happened, hold the people accountable, and free the people that were unjustly convicted. Noelle. And that needs to be en masse, not piecemeal. Um,
0: It seems as though our criminal justice system specifically is designed to let wealthy folks off the hook, because they can hire the fanciest lawyers, um, and criminalize poverty. Should we be looking at reimagining our court system in a way that poverty is never criminalized, that any crime that arises from someone's uh you know the uh, financial uh, inability or from their financial distress is automatically not seen as a crime and is seen as something that needs to have a systemic change you know uh, either figuring out the right kind of restitution, proper rehabilitation uh, long term economic justice. Uh, approaches. And then if you are wealthy, that you're the one who gets stuck with a public defender who might have a huge caseload because uh, your wealth shouldn't privilege. Is there a way to turn it upside down so that the rich aren't the ones who are taking advantage of the system that's been sort of rigged for them?
1: You know, the rich are never arrested. <laughs> mm. And if we see them, it's just a an illusion. It's a a mirage. It's like something that- It's like the is... college
0: admission scandal where with the celebrities yeah. being trotted yeah. out into so prison.
1: Um, you know, I wish that uh, when crime is analyzed about what's deeply impacting and hurting the most people, that the DA's budget and the police budget, whatever's left of it, is organized to go after the people that are hurting the community the most, right? And mm-hmm. that is very much not going to be all the people they're currently arresting. You know, it's going to be people who are have a much more systemic access to, you know, pollution and, you know, guns and crime. You know, there's there's a there's a lot going on that is not looked at. It's privileged because it's supporting the system. So it needs a radical revamping of how we look at crime and It's like a chicken and an egg. Like we have to take all the money that we spend on these slave catching police patrols and we have to take all of it and invest in the people and in the community and in the culture and in providing jobs and housing and a minimum income. And why not? We're a rich country. We don't need to be just taking all this money out of the community and giving it to people who live in other zip codes and who are wealthy. We need to keep the money in the community and it needs to be of service to the community. That is fundamentally going to change how much crime there is. Um, when people have access to really their humanity, you know, when it's not such an, an amazingly hostile environment to breathe in and live in. And when we don't have police who will criminalize protests, who will criminalize people who are disabled, who will criminalize the mentally ill and who will make them so vulnerable, you know, that's what we need. We need to eliminate police and we need to invest all of that money directly in the community.
0: Finally, Noelle, how has your work with incarcerated individuals for so many decades influenced you and helped you articulate this vision um, of abolition? Um, Why are you, what, what has made you an abolitionist? I'd love to sort of end with that personal question for you, because I think it's important to hear people's stories and how they, what their trajectory
1: has been. I think we grow. And I think our experiences teaches us. And I understand that the abolitionist movement, the work that we're seeing now, the changes in our culture are often coming from the inside out. That these ideas have been studied and realized on the inside prior to being motivated in the outside. So I'm doing a book right now, helping Lumia Abu-Jamal and Jennifer Black edit a book on, it's an anti-prison reader. It's called Beneath the Mountain. And it's Angela's in prison writings and Nat Turner's writings. And throughout the centuries, writings from inside that have really illuminated both what's happening and the path forward. And that's what I see. I see that the work has come from below.
0: Noel, where can people uh, find out about your work? Give out the
1: website for Prison Radio. www.prisonradio.org is our website. Prisonradio.org, um, and I'm doing a lot of casework. I'm doing investigations, um, and they can reach me at Noelle Hanrahan Law at gmail.com. So N Hanrahan Law at gmail.com. And uh, basically, we've got to get people out and we've got to be the abolitionist reality. We've got to envision that and demand it and make it happen. Thank you so
0: much for all you do, Noel, and for joining me today. I really appreciate your time.